Father in heaven, we've just sung, we've just prayed, where else can we go when you have the words of eternal life? And so we pray that as we look at these chapters together this morning, you might indeed bring life within us. Help us to grasp more of who you are, to grasp more of who we are, and so more of what it means to live for you in your strength. Josiah seems a very long time ago and yet so contemporary and relevant, so please speak and please be at work among us. Please bring encouragement where it's needed. Please bring challenge or conviction where it's needed. But please speak and be at work. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are coming to the end of our series in Chronicles, and we are currently in the downward spiral, zooming down the helter-skelter as, as king after king after king are wandering off. The God who gave them their land becomes less and less of a priority for these kings, more and more simply of a footnote, of an afterthought. And this account this week with Josiah, well, I don't know whether you spotted some of the similarities as um, Matt was teaching the kids and us a moment ago with Joash from last week. There were lots of overlaps and parallels. Um, with Joash, as with Joash, Josiah comes to the throne as a young boy. As with Joash, he collects funds for temple restoration. As with Joash, he stands in the king's place in the temple precincts. And indeed, as we'll see for both of them, they lead the nation in some kind of covenant renewal of a turning back to the Lord. The big difference, though, this week with Josiah, we'll see, is that if Joash's reign was, in football terms, a game of two halves, do you remember we went up the mountain and then fell down the other side? as Jehoiada died. Well, this week, Josiah does really well until injury time. And there's an awkward own goal, and he spoils it a bit in the final minute. What we'll see is that Josiah is something of a high point um, in terms of the kings going through Chronicles. He brings some kind of reformation. He brings faithful worship back again to the people of God. And so he is famous in many ways. You have a number of um, Christian families calling their sons Josiah for good reason, largely, because he is a good guy. He is the last good king. He is the last big king to be spared exile, as it happens. But his end, and we'll see at the end of chapter 35, it, I think it's meant to leave us feeling frustrated. Because again, even in our very best moments, you recognize some things of the limitations and flaws of humanity, of earthly kings. Kings who get it wrong, who can only really create external laws and create external obedience. And so, of course, he will point ahead again to the perfect king we are longing for. What we're going to do this morning is we're going to work fairly quickly through the whole of the two chapters, if we can, I'm going to try and have my cake and eat it, both trying to give a big picture overview, but as well as that, to bury down into some of the applications for us at various points. Um, it'll help if you have a Bible in your hands or on your phone or tablet or memorised. Um, we're on page 467 if you have a church Bible, it says on the screen. And the first thing um, we're going to look at, just in 1 to 3 of chapter 34, is this idea of a new king. So rather like Joash, he begins very early. Josiah was just an eight-year-old boy when he took over the throne. He was um, 16 when he started to serve God, to seek God. 
And it seems he was 20 when his um, reformation begins. And the thing about being 20 as a king of the people of God is that at 20 you essentially begin to take the reins. It's at 20 you begin to have a say. But before this point you were advised by your regent who was kind of ruling on your behalf in many ways. But at 20 you're given power and so at 20 he begins. And yet it's striking what he begins with. It's pretty destructive. He begins with what I've called a total mortification. Mortification means putting things to death. And so it's striking that what he does is he begins by dealing with false worship that is rife among the people of God. He gets rid of it. Worship that leads God's people away from God. Worship that leads people to death. And so if you have a glance down at verse 4 to 7, do you... You see, some of it, he, he takes apart some of these structures of false worship that have made their way back into the people again. The altars of Baal, the incense altars, the Asherah poles, the idols, even the priests are, are destroyed and they are scattered. Actually, verse 6 is important as well. It's, we, we miss it because we don't know the geography, but in verse 6, the, the names of the towns there, Manasseh, Ephraim, Simeon, as far as Naphtali, well, even though the land has split, do you remember, into north and south? Even though the land has split, those towns are in the north. Which means there's something of a, of a reunification that is happening under Josiah. Something of a minor reunification, at least, for a time. His rule and his influence seems to extend beyond just the south, but into the north as well. And so it's pretty destructive, and to us, it sounds awkward, doesn't it? With our ears from our times, it sounds intolerant and inappropriate and problematic and barbaric. But again, maybe for us, that shows something of the way in which God has shrunk in our minds. How much we, we minimize his holiness, how much we minimize the sinfulness of sin, the incredible dangers of false worship. We've... We've watered him down. Now, we're not to be a people who do quite what Josiah did. But we are to be a people who put to death sin. Who constantly put to death the sinful nature within us. Who, who root out and destroy the other gods whom we worship. Josiah's vehement angry removal of false worship from his people shows us again something of how rightly jealous our God is. And yet how, how content perhaps we can be with, with our own sin and our own idolatry and our own little gods and we, we turn a blind eye to them and we excuse them and allow them, we mollycoddle them even. Or even how content we can be with sin within the church community. Just thinking as individuals now, but the wider corporate body, we avoid the awkward. And we don't say what perhaps we ought to say. We don't challenge perhaps where we ought to. I was, um, I was reminded of the story recently of Perembi the hunter. Um, Perembi was a... It comes in a book written by a missionary called Paul White, children's books, but with lots of life lessons. Um, 
he tells the story of um, leopards and, and a leopard skin I mean, where they're writing in their context were worth many cows in the marketplace and so a leopard is hunted and a leopard is killed it, it was a mother leopard it turns out and they find this cute little kitten leopard who would love that as a pet I would and Perembri takes this baby kitten leopard home as a pet for his children. And yet the village chief is not happy. He says, no, 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 little leopards become big leopards and big leopards kill people. They ignore his advice. And they say they will teach this leopard differently and it won't be the same for them. They will bring it up on milk and other stuff. And, and the leopard grows into an adult. He's kind to the children. He's a great pet. Until one day this leopard licks a wound and gets his taste of blood. And little leopards become big leopards and big leopards kill people. You see, sin has a way of growing and yet we, whether in church or whether personally, we, we turn a blind eye to our sins. We mollycoddle them, we allow them, we excuse them, we ignore them, we... we we try and say, well, it's not my fault, it's this reason, or this, or God doesn't mind that much, or he's here to forgive me, that's his job. Or... And yet, as Josiah comes in and brings this mortification, this putting to death, we're reminded of the fact that we need to put to death the sinful nature each day. We live in a world that will excuse it. The interesting thing he does then, though, he doesn't just put to death the sinful nature, if you like. He, he pursues true worship as well. Paul might put it, he doesn't just put to death the sinful nature, he puts on Christ. You see, our hearts were made to worship. There's a sense in which we can't stop worshipping. We were made to be people who worship. That's the way we are created. And yet when you get rid of one false thing to worship, it needs to be replaced by a true thing. It means when you deal with false worship and Asherah poles and Baals, idolatrous worship, we need to focus on the one whom we were made to worship. The one in whom we find rest, the one in whom we find joy and life and patience and peace. That those false things that we worship are simply pale shadows of what our true worship ought to be. Which means for Josiah, as we saw with Joash last week, there is a temple repair happening again it's six years later it makes Josiah 24 and you remember we've seen week by week by week this idea in Chronicles that true and faithful worship is foundational to the people of God and so the state of the temple as you work through Chronicles is something of a barometer for the spiritual state of the people do you remember that the writer recounting history in such a way that the future generations learn the lessons of history. That they don't, that we don't make the same mistakes again and again and again and again and again because we have a tendency to do that. 
And so in Josiah goes, sending teams to repair the temple. Practical work happens. There are carpenters and there are builders and there are laborers. They're all called in. And yet in 14 to 15, as Hannah read for us, look what they find as they are sorting out the temple. While they were bringing out the money that had been taken to the temple of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord that had been given through Moses. Hilkiah said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the temple of the Lord. He, he gave it to Shaphan. It's probably Deuteronomy that they find. And straight away they see something of the importance of this find. And so it goes to the king and there is this, fourthly, a desire to hear the word of God. Do you see, with total worship, with true worship, must come a desire to hear what God is saying to us. And so let me read from verse 19 of chapter 34. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his robes. He gave these orders to Hilkiah, Ahikim, son of Shaphan, Abdon, son of Micah, Shaphan, the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's attendant. Go and inquire of the Lord for me and for the remnant in Israel and Judah about what is written in this book that has been found. Great is the Lord's anger that is poured out on us because those who have gone before us have not kept the word of the Lord. They have not acted in accordance with all that is written in this book. It's interesting, isn't it? Discovering God can sometimes be a really uncomfortable experience. Josiah sees the implications as he reads probably Deuteronomy. It's a theme that you find again and again in the scriptures. Think of Isaiah as he encounters God in his throne. Isaiah 6, Woe to me, Isaiah cried, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Think of, think of Jesus as he advises Simon Peter on, on fishing tactics. Do you remember? Jesus said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything, but because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break, so they signaled to their partners in the boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they began to seek them. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. This, this glimpse of who our God is, how extraordinary, how holy, how terrifying. And we remember what we're like and, and we feel exposed and vulnerable and ashamed and we're there trying to cover ourselves with fig leaves. And You see, something of that was Josiah. He, he recognizes the implications as they find Deuteronomy. For us, for us this side of the cross, is at that point we run to him for forgiveness. And we realize that this beautiful, loving, holy, terrifying God in Christ is our Father in heaven. He is one whom we can approach because he's made it possible. We're not clothed in our own fig leaves. We're, we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. D despite who we are and despite who he is, we go to him because of Christ. We are loved and forgiven and accepted and, and covered. I think it's also 
striking with Josiah that you see something of the distinction between a general awareness of God's words and then suddenly this zealous desire to understand them and apply them. Has that been your experience? Sometimes the Lord just gives you such painful clarity, piercing. The things that you kind of knew in general terms, perhaps, suddenly, we might say, by his spirit, he, he applies them to us personally with power. You, you read that passage that you've read so many times, and suddenly it's just boom. That, that's the Lord speaking to me by his spirit through his words. I guess that's what we would say happening here to an extent with Josiah. He, he reads the scriptures and he sees the implications and they impact him in costly ways. As he hears the word of the Lord, it, it makes a difference to how he lives. Things, things change. Things can never be the same again. And so from this desire to hear the word of the Lord comes a faithful new beginning. This is the big chunk in the middle of the passage, 34, 29 through to 35, 19. And at the heart of Josiah's reign, he leads the people in the celebration of the Passover. That's his big thing. Remembering and rejoicing again in God's faithfulness, God's kindness, God's rescue. Remember the Passover, it was that meal instituted as God rescued his people from Egypt. Something at the core of who they are in their identity. Remembering who they belong to. Remembering who they were. Remembering the, the redemption, the ransom as he brought them to himself and gave them a new land. And so as they celebrate it again here in chapter 35, it not only reveals something of a, of a fresh commitment to the word of God, but it's also as if it's a, as if it's a new beginning again. They're remembering who they are again. Have a look down at that section. There are a number of things I want to point out, key things for us to chew over and meditate upon it. It begins 34 verse 29 to 30 with this kind of covenant renewal ceremony. And you see all of Israel there at this point. All of Israel listening to the book being read. This is not just the leaders, not just the kinis, not just the creme de la creme, but rather the word of God again at the heart of the people. And so it is that God's word is always at the foundation for renewal and revitalization among his people, whether that's an individual thing or a corporate thing. His word must always be central and foundational, whether daily, small scale, or once and for all. It's, it's God's word that brings life and change. The trouble is our hearts wander and we look for other silver bullets that we think might just work. But actually, as you read through the scriptures, it's always the word of God. It's his word that brings life. God speaks and, and worlds are created and lives are transformed. So his word is central here. It's interesting, as they celebrate the Passover, secondly, they do it at the proper time. The minutiae of the details and the dates are, are faithful. They tick each and every box. Now, I know some of you have been reading in between the sections through Chronicles, and you might remember King Hezekiah. He, a few chapters before, he celebrated a Passover 
He was another blip in the kingly decline. But he hadn't been able to do it at the right time. Whereas Josiah does. He ticks each and every box, whereas Hezekiah had just done pretty well. It's worth noticing as we're on the way past that Jerusalem at this point is not a large city. It's not a big place. And so for the Passover festival to happen, there is this massive, enormous influx of people. As you read the verses, imagine the hordes of people gathering to celebrate the hustle, the bustle, the the sounds and the smells and the the mess and the mayhem. It's overcrowded, it's joyful, and people have traveled miles to be there. We lose something of that as as we just kind of read words on a page. It's striking as well that the Levites are completely involved as well in a slightly different way from previously. Um, We're done with the tabernacle. We're done with the tent. We're in the temple now. And so it means from this point, really, their job description seems to tweak slightly. Now they're not so much about putting up and down the tent, but they are moving the tabernacle, or moving the tabernacle everywhere, but rather it's much more about liturgy, interestingly, from here on. That they lead the people in worship now. You get it in verse 3, for example, there's a, chapter 35, there's a focus on teaching, which is now emphasized. Or verse 6, it would be that the Levites who would kill the Passover lambs now, rather than the family heads. The, the Levites as priests take an increasing role of leadership from Josiah onwards. That there's a generosity as well that you see at the heart of this Passover. So look at verse 7 and verse 8, for example. Josiah provided for, Josiah provided for all the lay people who were there a total of 30,000 lambs and goats for the Passover offerings and, and also 3,000 cattle, all from the king's own possessions. Verse 8, his officials also contributed voluntarily to the people and the priests and the Levites. Remember, it sounds a bit like David again from a few weeks ago at the end of 1 Chronicles, chapter 29. They were collecting for the temple. Do you remember David's generosity? David gave from his own savings, his own bank accounts. Well, you see it here again now with Josiah and his leaders. They aren't simply doing the professional arm's length job. They, they are personally invested in a way that is costly for them. And so it's Josiah that provides the animals for the sacrifices. It's the officials that contribute voluntarily to the people and the priests. The other thing that you see is that it's not sort of slapdash. Again and again and again you get this refrain, this comment saying that it is done in the way prescribed by their forefathers. So verse 6 again Slaughter the Passover lambs, consecrate yourselves and prepare the lambs for your fellow Israelites, doing what the Lord commanded through Moses. Or, or verse 12, they set aside the burnt offerings to give them the subdivisions of the families of the people to offer to the Lord as it's written in the book of Moses. Or verse 13, roast the, animals, the Passover animals over the fire as prescribed. Or verse 15, the musicians, the descendants of Aphaph, were in the places prescribed by David this time. Asaph, Heman, and Jeduthun. It's according to Moses' commands. 
or David's instructions. It was all as it was prescribed, even to the extent of the little details. There. Verse 13, they, they roasted the Passover animals over the fire as prescribed, boiled the holy offerings in pots, cauldrons, and pans, and served them quickly to all the people. There's a deliberate haste. Do, do you remember why? Because at the original Passover, they had to be quick. And so all the I's are dotted and all the T's are crossed and it is legit and faithful and as it's meant to be. And so the conclusion there, 35 verse 18, the bottom of 469, the Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel and none of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as Josiah did. With the priests, the Levites, and all Judah and Israel who were, with, who were there with the people of Jerusalem. You, you see, if, if Josiah is going to rebuild the people and the nation, he must start with healthy foundations, a healthy understanding of their identity, a, a returning to the Lord. And the Passover in large part is them doing that. It's remembering who God is, remembering who they are, and what he's done, and what he's like. That's why when we have the Lord's Supper, every month or so, we are remembering, in many ways, who God is and what he's done and what he is like and so who we are. Because we're a people who forget. One writer put it like this, speaking of this section of Chronicles, they said, Israel must be drawn constantly back to its roots to know again and again its true identity. And they get this. To be delivered from the delusion that comes from the normal preoccupation with the routine, the menial and the material. That the sum of life is no more than this. You see, in the daily grind of life to remember who we really are because what we do day by day, hour by hour, tricks us into thinking that's what life is all about. That this is all there is. And yet the people are to take a step backwards to remember the Passover Remember who God is and who they are. This writer continues, and so he continues, um, they can have hope, that is that which characterizes the people of God essentially is their knowledge of his past faithfulness to them and their hope that knowledge is a guarantee of future security. So to look back and so to look forwards with hope. And verse 19, top of page 470, would be a wonderful place to finish our sermon. There is something of a sense of ought there, of finality, of happily ever after. Josiah the king, Josiah the hero, aged only 26, and he has reformed the nation. But we don't stop there. Because we're still on the helter-skelter. He was just a blip. And so interestingly, his reign doesn't end well. And we are looking at our watches thinking, come on, how much injury time is there, ref? And suddenly there's his own goal. And we shouldn't duck these verses because they're here for a reason. And that reason is for our good. I'm going to read from verse 20 to the end and then talk briefly about them. After all this, when Josiah had set the temple in order, Nietzsche, king of Egypt, went up to fight at Carchemish on the Euphrates, and Josiah marched out to meet him in battle. But Nietzsche sent messengers to him, saying, What quarrel is there, king of Judah, between you and me? It is not you I am attacking at this time, but the house with which I am at war. God has told me to hurry, so stop opposing God who is with me, or he will destroy you. 
Josiah, however, would not turn away from him, but he disguised himself to engage him in battle. He would not listen to what Nietzsche had said at God's command, but went to fight him on the plain of Megiddo. Archers shot King Josiah, and he told his officers, take me away, I'm badly wounded. So they took him out of his chariot, put him in his other chariot, and brought him to Jerusalem, where he died. He was buried in the tombs of his ancestors, and all Judah and Jerusalem mourned for him. Jeremiah composed laments for Josiah, and to this day, all the male and female singers commemorate Josiah in the laments. These became a tradition in Israel and, and are written in the laments. The other events of Josiah's reign and his acts of devotion in accordance with what is written in the law of the Lord, all the events from beginning to end are written in the book of the kings of Israel and Judah. See, he was a good king, but he was still flawed, both in himself but also in the extent of his, his kingdom. And so there was a faithful new beginning, but finally, but he still couldn't create an internal transformation. Just briefly, let me try and help you see what happened. Um, The big picture political background at this time is that the Assyrians are on the decline, but they are being propped up by the Egyptians, and they form some kind of allegiance. So Nietzsche is this Egyptian pharaoh. And he goes to the aid of the Assyrian king as they together seek to withhold and stand against the Babylonians coming from the north. And yet God speaks through the mouth of Nietzsche to Josiah, but this time Josiah ignores his voice. Josiah does not hear the word of the Lord through this Egyptian king. All kinds of questions that might come from that. It's striking, he doesn't inquire of the Lord at this point. He doesn't do what he did when the law was found, but simply he wades into battle and he ends up falling in battle. And he started so well, but he ends up essentially finishing like any of the the wicked apostate kings that we've seen in previous weeks. He's buried in peace, not on the battlefield. But again, it's, it's interesting, it's ominous, because you don't get the mention of representatives from the north coming to worship at his funeral or to mourn at his funeral. This, this fragile political unity that we saw at the beginning seems to, have, seems to have fallen by the wayside. It's not how it was meant to finish. It's, it's fundamentally dissatisfying, isn't it? As I was preparing, it reminded me of that awful series on TV a few years ago called Lost. Do you remember that? It ended in such an unsatisfactory place, you couldn't quite believe the final episode. It was incoherent. There were loose ends not tied up. It was not how it was meant to be. There was no resolution. There was no sense of ought, of finality. But I think that's something of the point that we get with Josiah. Because no amount of external reforms can affect real change in people. They still left Josiah flawed. He he doesn't hear the voice of God. The people will very quickly decline once again. And so whilst he was good news, and he did lead the people well, his reforms only went so far. We'll see that next week. And yet for me in preparing this, it's striking that the mention of the prophet in verse 25 is prophet Jeremiah. As far as we can tell, the the prophet Jeremiah. And so it's striking that Jeremiah reminds us of, of something of the new covenant to come. 
As you read Jeremiah, there are, particularly in my mind at least, there are, there's a hard truth and a beautiful truth that are applicatory to this point. The hard truth is that famous verse in Jeremiah 17 verse 9. Speaking of the new covenant, he, he begins in context with 17 verse 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's the context for Jeremiah. It means that our biggest problem in daily life is not out there somewhere. It's those things that make us slip up or those people or those situations, but rather our biggest problems in life are in here, in our own hearts. And what comes out of us, however much we don't like it, comes out because it's already in there. The human heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. That way that we're always naturally self-reliant and proud, we're daily self-deceiving, we, we want to be in charge, we want to convince ourselves that our motives are pure and this is what God wants of us and this is the right thing to do, but, but no, we're not neutral. The, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Or at least it's beyond any human cure. Because as Jeremiah continues, it points us ahead to a new covenant, a beautiful truth. The hard truth is that our hearts are deceitful. The beautiful truth is that there would be a new king who would come and bring reformation. And he would change us, but not from laws from the outside. Laws and structures to alter our behavior, but rather establish a new covenant and change us from within. Not having the law in a temple, as Josiah repaired, made of bricks and mortar, but rather a law within our own hearts by his spirit. Have a listen to Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I'll make a new covenant with the people of Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant. Though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. You see, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. This is the answer to, to Josiah. Yes, he enacted amazing reforms among the people. Yes, the temple was rebuilt. Yes, the, the Passover was celebrated and it was a high watermark on the way down. But he could only enact external temporary change. And the kings to come will be a mess. He needed the new covenant that we have in Christ. And Jesus is ours. And he is able to change us from within. He is the one who is only able to bring reformation. He does that from inside us with our deceitful hearts. Let me lead us in prayer. And then we will sing as we respond finally. Lord, we thank you for Josiah in many ways. Thank you that he 
He understood the importance of faithful worship. He understood the importance of false worship. And so he got rid of it. And we pray that you would help us, please, to, in your strength, put to death the sinful nature and put on Christ. We thank you for the way in which your words worked among the people. And yet, as, as with each week, we are left wanting more because we're left wanting the Lord Jesus, your true King who can bring internal change, who can deal with our deceitful hearts. Thank you for the new covenant that we enjoy in him. Thank you that you have put your law on our minds. You've written your law in our hearts. Thank you that you are our God and we are your people. And yet we pray that increasingly you would help us to live as those people. Help us to do that as a church. Help us to do that as individuals. And Lord, where you have spoken to us this morning... By your spirit, would you give us the strength, please, to be those who obey, whatever that might look like. Guard us, please, from simply hearing your word and so walking away and deceiving ourselves. With your help, might we be those who do what it says. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.